Listen up, everybody. On Tuesday, March 19th, 4.15 Eastern Time, that's 1.15 here local in LA, I'll be hosting a webinar to discuss Cambria's two new ETFs, the Cambria Tactical Yield ETF, ticker TYLD, and the Cambria Micro and Small Cap Shareholder Yield ETF, ticker MYLD. Head over to Cambria's Twitter and LinkedIn pages to find the registration link. Once again, that's March 19th at 4.15 Eastern Time. Look forward to seeing you. Carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risk factors, charges, and expenses before investing. This and other information can be found by visiting our website at www.cambryfunds.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing or sending money. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of capital. The Cambry ETFs are distributed by Alps Distributors, Inc., member FINRA, FINRA. Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. We got a great show for you today. It is late April and we're recording this. Today's guest is one of the most often requested guests. So finally glad to wrangle him on here. He's currently the editor of Curzio Research Advisory, Venture Opportunities, Crypto Intelligence, and the Wall Street Unplugged All-Star Portfolio, where he offers the best off-air investments. He's worked for some of the top hedge funds on the street, focusing on small and mid-cap growth stocks. And over the past 10 years, my God, you're a grandfather on this. He's been hosting Wall Street Unplugged, ranked, if not the top, number one, most listened to financial podcast on iTunes. Welcome to the show, Frank Curzio. Thanks, man. I was going to let you keep going, man. I like that intro. Thanks, man. Well, <laughs> you know, the fact that you and I are talking today is actually of no thanks to you listeners, because one of the last times I hung out with Frankie tried to kill me on a golf card. Can I just mention, I hope... Your golf game has improved because there's really only one way to go at that point. Last time we played together. Yeah. And that golf cart. Yeah, you did actually. Uh, you got lucky. You saved us, I think. Otherwise, you might have got kicked off the golf course. But that's a different story. That's a different OK. Story. For a different time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Guest Frank, a lot of you have requested him. So we got him here today. You're an old school stocks guy. And we're going to talk about a lot of stuff today. We're going to talk about markets, sectors, biotech. I definitely want to save some time for the tokenization of Frank, which we'll get to near the end. So listeners, definitely stick around for that. Let's talk a little bit about it. you've gone out on the entrepreneurship plank, is the way I'd probably describe it, being an entrepreneur myself. Talk to me a little about starting your own company. When this happened, what are you focused on? All that good stuff. No, I appreciate that, man. But thanks so much for interviewing me, having to come on your show. I love it. I think it's one of the better podcasts that are out there. I love it. Yeah, I've been doing it for over 10 years and it's just nice. It's not a zero sum game, right? It's like you want to see more people get involved and it just seems like it's really building up in the financial world. So thanks so much for the invite. For me, I've been in this industry literally all my life. Past 25 years, I've done this financial research. My late dad has owned financial research company for 25 years. So I've been part of the business, the family business for a long time. And yeah, when he passed, I just figured I need to learn a little bit more. I went to work for Jim Cramer for a few years which was great. I mean, he has his critics and people like him or hate him. But on the research end, for me, coming from my dad, he was a pure value guy, right? So we weren't really into technology too much. And, you know, that was my education and analyzing balance sheets and income statements. Kramer is 100% a growth guy. And dealing with that for five years and the fact that we had to know every stock, every sector, everything, and the access that he had where he was like, these guys are going to ring the bell in New York Stock Exchange. I can't make it. Go make it with this company. You know, just go there, introduce yourself. And having dinner with some of the top uranium analysts. I didn't even know anything about uranium at the time. Access to CEOs of Fortune 500. So having that access and being forced to really understand so many different industries was incredible help to me. I didn't realize that at the time, but now I do because there's not one system that works, right? I mean, if there's one system that works, everybody would use it. And I think what I've learned over the years is you have to be able to adapt certain markets. David Einhorn's a good example who I'm a big fan of, but it's not a value market. And I just felt like he hasn't really changed too much and you've seen the performance and we've all had bad streaks and win streaks and stuff like that. But I really think you have to be able to adapt to different strategies in different markets because they're ever changing. So 
for me, I work for Stansberry Research, great company. It's part of the Agora network. And I just felt like in the past few years that this industry, which I'm very attached to, it's my life that I love, took a turn for the worse. I just felt like the promotions were getting very aggressive. There was a lot of people that were calling legends. And I have a lot of friends in the industry. I'm not talking bad about them, but I just felt like we had a way to change this, just a way for us to change things around and provide original content, original ideas, bring Wall Street to Main Street. We do have a podcast and one of the few in the financial newsletter industry that do that. So we launched our company, Curzio Research, a couple of years ago. In our first two years, we've done about $6 million in sales, which I'm proud of, I'm humbled by, and you know this as well as I do, Meb. It's kind of a drop in a bucket when you look at our industry because it's the financial news that are industry, one of the most scalable, high-margin businesses. And so far, we're off to a good start. We have 17 employees now, and things are good, and it's fun. My God, what do you have all those people doing? I know, I know. It's crazy. <laughs> you know what it is? We're really a digital marketing firm, right? So on the research end, it's great. We probably have five, six people you know, in terms of research, right, newsletters and things like that. But there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. And I'll tell you, Meb, I didn't really appreciate that for other companies I worked at, right? You're just a research analyst, and you're like, get this out, and I want to do this, and you realize how much goes into headlines and to making sure that design and you know, your subscribers subscribe to your stuff. You have to make sure all those subscriptions are good, credit card processing, accounting. And like you say, it's cool being an entrepreneur, but man, you get thrown into the fire right away and you're going to make lots of mistakes. And it's been fun along the way. And so far, so good, man. So thanks for asking. Look, I think that's a great example, not just for being an entrepreneur, but also being a portfolio manager. I mean, so many of the young people that we talk to, they all want to be Bobby Axelrod, right? You know, they want to be trading and the excitement of I'm going to go short Tesla and I'm going to buy gold on the like, and but really, they don't realize that you spend half your day just signing forms, dealing with the SEC, <laughs> dealing with compliance. And same thing as the CEO, you spend half your time, oh God, managing people, you got to fire people, you got to hire all that, all the just day to day is a lot less sexy. Anyway, all right. So, Let's talk about markets and we'll get probably more specific on areas, but what's the world look like to you today? April 2019. It's hard to even pronounce. For someone who's been around this, been a student of markets and been through the various cycles, what do things look like to you today? You find a lot of opportunity? You know what? I'm not finding as much opportunity, but I like the fact that you've seen a lot of separation where we had 3M report terrible numbers, iLink report terrible numbers, but other companies with those sectors reported good numbers. You're seeing separation where we saw the FANG stocks all go up, continue to go up no matter what. And then you saw Facebook branch off a little bit, report good earnings, and it's better. But when I take a step back and look at the markets, history, at least from my perspective and from what I research, again, you can interpret however you want. But the market usually does well when it's a Goldilocks economy, where if you talk to 10 people right now, you're going to have five people highlight the negatives of the market, towers, China, slowdown, earnings, maybe an earnings recession. You know, There's a lot to talk about, but also on the positive we don't have inflation, which means the Fed's not really going to raise rates. I wouldn't compare that, Meb, to 2011-12 because they're still deleveraging the balance sheet, right? So it's not necessarily easing even if they lower rates. It's not like it was 2011 and 2010 where they're giving checks away for people to buy houses and cars, but it's a favorable economic landscape. And when you look at that, it sets up the market like we've seen since December and even before December, that 20% decline really quick from September through December and going back a few years. It's like a slow grind higher. And I continue to see that when I look at valuations, they're not crazy stretched. We're not growing as much on the earnings end. I think they're going to be flat this quarter compared to last year. The year before was double digit growth because we saw, you know, obviously tax reforms and things like that. But when I look, it just seems like a decent economy. We have very little inflation. So the Fed's going to be accommodative going forward, at least through 2019, probably in 2020. They're not going to do anything crazy going into an election year either. But I see the markets grinding higher going forward. And I know that's not the most exciting thing, right? You want to hear the market's going to crash 40% or it's going to go up 30%. But I tell it how it is. And I believe that you're going to see a slow grind going higher. And then there's going to be a time when the markets are hitting new highs and they're going to go high and you're going to get all those, especially those technical guys, are just going to go there and say, oh, the market's going higher and higher. And they all, you know, that pendulum swings to one side, but I don't see it. I see a lot of nervousness. I still hear people calling for a crash and I don't see people crazy bullish right now, which is a good sign if you're a contrarian investor. So I think there's opportunities. It's not as easy. You're going to be buying expensive stocks, but on a whole trading at 16 times, 16 and a half times forward earnings, that's the five-year average. So we're not super expensive, but if things do come down 10, 15%, you're going to find lots of ideas, just like people saw in December. And uh, if I had a guess through 2019, we're probably going to grind higher maybe into the election as well, 2020. So that's a good overview of the landscape. And feel free to tear it apart, buddy. I love it. <laughs> no, I largely agree with you. I mean, looking at the comment you made earlier about Einhorn, I think is actually very insightful where so many people 
have a certain style, whether you're a high dividend guy or, hey, I'm 60-40 US only or I invest in XYZ, whatever it may be, the challenge with being adhering to one very specific style, like you mentioned, is these long periods in value has been just going through a just Grand Canyon, long, deep chasm of underperformance relative to other styles. And so for people that aren't thoughtful about, say, growth, which I know you focus a lot on in certain areas, it can be not just challenging, but career ending. Talk to me a little bit about, let's drill down into some sectors. I know you follow tech a lot. In a recent podcast, you were talking about this new startup called IBM. But you said, aside from the numbers they reported, which I thought was very positive, forget about them for a minute because the story is about Red Hat, which they are in the middle of acquiring for $34 billion. Red Hat, I mean, that's a stock that I remember talking about in the late 90s. Talk to me a little bit about tech in general and then also kind of what's your thoughts and thesis on IBM? Tech in general, look, what I find amazing is a company like Facebook, right? So never, and I'm sure you could say this too, Matt, never in a million years, I think two and a half billion people would go on one platform, right? Facebook may be the only company I've ever researched in the past 25 years that completely changed their business model six months ago and are benefiting it in less than six months, right? Usually you see, oh, a transition, we're going to do something differently. And you see choppy quarters after that. The last two quarters for Facebook, they reported amazing numbers. Why? Because, and this is one of the things, one of the themes we should get to is putting your personal feelings aside, which is very difficult for all of us to do. I don't care how much experience you have in this analysis, it's always tough. And if you put your personal feelings aside and say, okay, the privacy issues, and I hated Cambridge Analytica and all this stuff, the bottom line is they have access to billions of people, and these billions of people go on a platform and tell you exactly what they want. They tell you exactly where they are. They post all pictures. There's not a better platform to advertise on. I mean, think about it. if you're a company, you go to Comcast or go to a cable company, you're going to say, okay, I want to advertise, and they're going to give you all the demographics. You really don't know. I mean, if you're Starbucks and you walk into Facebook and you say, hey, I want to advertise, Facebook goes, hold up a second. There's 2 million people in your Starbucks right now. What do you want to send them? And you can't compete with that. And that gives Facebook incredible pricing power. It gives Google incredible pricing power. Those are the platforms that everyone, all the major businesses, all the big businesses spend money are going to go to. And when I look at technology, I don't see that changing. I see more regulation in the industry. You saw Facebook get hit on that. Amazon is just incredible, probably the most innovative company I've ever seen. Microsoft leveraged to cloud. What a great idea. I think it's the largest company in the world based on market cap right now, even bigger than Amazon. But when I look at technology as a whole, I just see those leaders continue to grind higher. You could make a case for other, the Netflixes, where the amount of money that they're spending is pretty crazy. I don't think Disney getting into that industry is really going to disrupt anything. That's not a zero-sum game either. So people could stream and have multiple services, which is normal. And getting to IBM, look, I was able to look at IBM from a fresh perspective, which sometimes that's difficult to do. Because if you own IBM like three, four, five years ago, you hate the company, even when Buffett went into it and he wound up getting out of it. But what they're doing right now in transitioning, uh, people are focusing on the top line. Don't focus on the top line. I don't care how low that – it's all about margins. It's all about profits. And they're getting into more services. So their revenue is going to come down. Their margins are going to go higher. And their profits are accelerating. And they've been working with Red Hat. That's going to give them – they're basically going to be the number one provider in hybrid cloud, which is private and also public cloud, which they're saying is a trillion-dollar market. And even if it's less than that, I mean cloud is still very much in its infancy. If you look at IBM and that acquisition – with Red Hat, they're saying 80% of their clients that they have are not even on the cloud yet. So you're going to see earnings really ramp up. It could take a while and you could be wrong, but you know what? You're going to get paid a 4.5% dividend to wait, and that dividend's perfectly safe when you look at earnings and cash flow. So to me, it's a good company. You see the transition already. I thought the quarter was pretty good, but that Red Hat deal is going to be a game changer for the company, and they've worked with Red Hat. They worked with their developers before. They've been working with them for a while, which is important because you always have the integration risk. But I think it's going to be a blockbuster deal for this company. I would put it in the, in the department of eBay and, and PayPal. That's how positive I think it's going to be. So I think it's going to do very well, IBM, going forward. It's a long-term play. I think it's a great play. It's not going to make you rich tomorrow. It's just a good large cap. It's going to pay you dividend, and you're going to have that growth because there are so many new businesses, and especially the high-growth industries like AI, data analytics, that folks are on blockchain as well, and it's starting to take market share. And it's funny as you listen to kind of the – General media talk about tech because thinking back to my favorite bubble, which was the late 90s one, there was a massive market cap bubble, but many of the big tech companies didn't have any earnings at all. And it's a little different this time. Some of them, of course, are trading at really large valuations now, but the big difference is they're just printing money. A lot of these companies are just making money hand over fist. And so trying to compare historical 
market cycles is always tough because it's not always exactly the same. And I'll leave this open-ended for you. You're welcome to talk a little more about any ideas or, or trends in tech, but also under that broad umbrella, I know you focus on biotech too. And can you walk us through a little bit about how you think about that sector as well? Yeah, I love biotech. And it's great to recommend stocks to people that you think they can make a lot of money on. But a lot of this stuff is feel-good stories as well, like gene editing, immunotherapy. Is, you know, these are trends I follow for over five years. And immunotherapy is just basically telling your immune system, because when you get cancer, your immune system tries to fight it, and they can't beat it. It gives up, and then your cancer spreads. And that's the most powerful thing in the world, right? Your immune system, your body. And now they're finding a way to, to tell your immune system, hey, you know what? Keep fighting. And you're seeing like kids that were given six months, nine months to live, they're cancer free for like five, six years. And you're seeing, you know, just so many different things come out. It's amazing to see it. There's a lot of small cap stocks where they'll partner with guys like Merck, who has Keytruda, one of the biggest markets. Opdivo is also a huge immunotherapy drug. And those are the big ones that are approved. Opdivo is from um, Bristol Myers. And when you have these little companies, they're basically using those drugs and combining them and trying to make it even better and basically increase the survival rates. But there's just so much going on in that industry. And we were able to do you know, very well because of kind of the formula we use in today's day and age. Right. I mean, even in earnings, if you miss like look at 3M, you know, you get crushed, you get destroyed. In biotech, too, a lot of times it's difficult to get a product to market. And it, nothing ever goes, hey, you have a great phase one, phase two, phase three studies, right? And then you, you go to market. Never ever happens in biotech. A lot of times they'll have phase two studies and the FDA is like, hey, you know what? It just didn't meet our primary endpoint. And the stock will lose 50, 60% of its value. And it trades lower than the cash it has on its balance sheet. And then you're getting the rest of the pipeline for free. And when you analyze the data of what the FDA said, they said, look, we just didn't like this. We want to see more safety on this. And they'll come back to the market six months or nine months, and you're getting a significant discount a lot of these companies. Sometimes the study is so bad that they discontinue the drug, and that might be their only drug, and you know, then, of course, you're going to avoid it. But instead of buying into the hype, I like looking at these things when they get crushed because people run to the exits immediately without looking at the news. And these companies are still fundamentally sound. They're good, but you get them for a big discount. And it's one of the few industries I know of where, I mean, these things get hit hard so hard, well, you'll see them trade below you know, the net cash on that balance sheet, which almost gives you no risk. Obviously, you've got to look at cash burn and stuff like that. But we've done well on biotech. We've been fortunate only because we have a really good network of a lot of analysts that I reach out to and talk to. And because I've learned from my mistakes, right? I mean, we all have. And But that's been a market that we cover that I really like. Biotech is certainly near and dear to my heart. That's how I got started out. And I remember going back to the old FDA approval meetings in Maryland. This would have been, I think, in Bethesda at the NIH and other places. And it's funny because you would have some companies that knew damn well that they had zero chance of getting a drug approved that basically had no statistical evidence, but they would bring in a bunch of advocates and people that had either through just randomness or placebo effect done well <laughs> trying to convince the FDA. But eventually it's a long process and they get it right. But it's funny because every four years or so, Biotech goes through a reckoning and the whole sector gets pounded by it 50%. And then it usually stabilizes and it's off to the next races. But what a what a fun industry. And I think what you mentioned is, I think, important for a lot of investors, which is, are you getting more excited about helping a company sell more digital ads or actually have some impact? And biotech is certainly a sector that does that, but not without its own landmines. My Worst trade of all time involves biotech. <laughs> it usually does, man. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is why I became a quant. That scarred me for life. I said, man, my God, I'm never doing that again. You go to a lot of conferences. You talk to a lot of CEOs and do old school value-added research and channel checks and all these things that hedge funds do that most investors don't. And I know that in looking at a lot of the your research over the years, you also have a one foot in the natural resources sector, which is an area that those of us south of the Canadian-US border is not as popular. But if you go to Canada or certain other states, it's a huge interest for a lot of investors and probably even more of a landmine field than biotech is. Talk to us a little bit about any global macro thoughts you have on the energy space, and then we can dive into any particular thoughts on some of the securities there as well. 
Yes. And Meb, you do the same thing. I mean, for me, I love that part of the business, right? It's like your investigative journalism, right? Where you're traveling all over the world. You know, I've seen you how many different conferences when we go out and you're always reporting on Twitter and stuff like that. I love that. But the difference to interrupt you is that you're good at it and I'm horrible at it. That's why I'm a quant is that uh, I believe what everyone says. I'm like an optimist. Like I, I was always terrible at the subjective side. So that's why I'm a quant. But uh, but you're not. You're good at it. So let's hear a little bit about it. All right. And I will say that you're definitely being modest because I've heard you speak conferences and you really know your stuff. For me, it's not just going to the CEOs, right? Because CEOs, even for your own company, for my company, you're always going to talk positive about it, right? I mean, that, that's your job. It's going out and talking to the workers, talking to the locals. And for me, I remember fracking, and I forgot the name of the movie that came out on HBO where, you know, fracking, the guy was lighting, whatever, turn on the faucet and lit on fire, the water coming out. When I started researching this industry in 2011, 2012, even as early as 2010, I went to every single major shell area in the United States, right? So it was, you know, the Permian, the Eagle Ford, I even went to, uh, to the Wilson Basin, North Dakota. And I thought there was going to be animals dead every place, right? <laughs> you know, so for me, going there, and that's a story everybody wants to hear, fracking is bad because of earthquakes. It doesn't cause water contamination ever. It can. It's impossible because fracking takes place at 3,000 feet, 4,000, 5,000, 10,000, even 12,000 feet. And you're looking at fresh water is usually around 500 feet. So unless these chemicals go upward through rock, which, you know, last, I think last time I read that can happen, you're not going to cause water contamination. And this whole thing that went out on this and just learning about that industry allowed us to get into a lot of different names. And I'm not saying that there's water pools there. And again, I visited all these areas, talked to locals and see the ton of research in this. And I'm not saying that you can't take that water and throw it in a river. Of course, that, that's different. But from what I read and from what you see in the field, it is so amazing. And it gives you a real edge by being in the room and going to these things. I went to in the middle of nowhere, Alaska, took two planes and a helicopter to the, it's the largest undeveloped copper site. It was for a company called Northern Dynasty. And it was like 35 cents at the time. And I went there with Marin Katusa, who you know as well. Doug Casey was there and uh, we took the best geologist in the world, right? And that's not me talking about it, but Dave Lowell, who discovered mining minerals, copper on, on almost every single continent. He's 80 something. And there was this big thing. It's all political saying that, you know, 150 miles away is, is uh, Bristol Bay. And they're saying that if they develop this site, the rivers that flow through their site is going to contaminate the sockeye salmon. All this, there's no rivers on the site. And I went there. I'm like, what, is, what are they talking? There's no rivers. There's nothing. So I was standing on their site. There's nothing there. And they're like, yeah, it's all political. And this was a few years ago. And we had went from a Democrat to a Republican, right? So I'm not going to get political here, but much more favorable when it comes to the environment. And that stock went to 3350, which I would have never discovered and never been able to understand if I didn't visit that site. I just would have believed what I read. So if the investors listen to this, go out there. Don't believe, I mean, you know, people have agenda on TV. People have agenda every place. Do your own research. I mean, when you have Google, you could talk to people. People love talking about themselves. You can call almost anyone. Go out there and do the research. This is your money and you really need to find these ideas. And when a lot of times they're not going to be this popular and the less popular they are, probably the more money you're going to make off of it, right? Because it's better to be on that side than with the crowd. And for my career, just you know, really digging into a lot of this stuff and talking to experts and interviewing them on my podcast as well, it's led us to a lot of original ideas. And you know, like you mentioned, I've been doing it for ten years, interviewing people. I get to pick the mind of somebody of a great person, you know. And you've been on the podcast too, Meb, every single week, and it just makes your network that much bigger. And for us, it's led to a lot of like just original ideas, which uh, which we've done well on over my career. And you also end up on occasion with some negative signaling where you talk to someone and they say, oh, no, like we didn't sell them any of this widget or product or we're not buying that. Or you actually go to a site and find out the opposite is true, right? Like you're interested and say, wait, this isn't even operational. And that's the funny thing about, I mean, you even see, God, it's just so crazy to watch this happens at such large scale too. And brilliant people consistently get fooled for various reasons. I mean, the whole Theranos my God, that documentary and just reading Bad Blood is it's funny how so much of this continues to happen even today. I was laughing with my brother. We have some river land in Colorado and we looked it up on Google Maps for doing something or other. And we were like, wait a minute, is that is that a trailer on our land? And sure enough, there's someone just hanging out squatting on our property. So always pays to do your research and Google Maps Pretty good one. Not too bad. But as you look around the natural landscape, natural resources, what is that world similar to biotech? It seems like every few years it goes through a long winter, sometimes longer than others, where natural resource and feel free to, to divvy this up into 
to gold miners or to oil energy explorers, all that good stuff. And, and as well as the actual commodities, any thoughts on oil, et cetera, any thoughts on that general landscape? In 2019, you're looking at oil companies obviously doing well because you know oil prices have gone up. You're seeing Saudis, you know, cut production. They want oil up as well. Is it mean projects are depleting, right? I mean, as soon as you drill, it's almost like depletion just. And that's what you're seeing a lot in fracking, where these guys have taken out. If you look at the balance sheets, of some of these companies, it's really scary. And some of them went bankrupt when oil prices went from you know 80, 90, wherever it was, like 2015, to under 30 briefly, but they basically stayed under 40. I would say on average, fracking is about $55 break even. You're going to find areas in the Permian. It's basically four counties where you could drill probably for $25 to $29 that work. But for the general part, the Williston's probably more like $60, $65. But on average, it's around $55. But these guys can quickly turn it on. And that's what they've done as prices go high. But remember, they're seeing a lot of depletion and not finding as much. It's not as easy. I mean, these guys actually find oil at nearly 100% rate, which I think is incredible because they're going the Permian where this is a 100-year oil field and it's all been drilled already and they're able to see exactly where these pockets are. But with that said, I'd be a little nervous about oil companies at this level. If you're going to stick with them, I like a company like Devon that's selling its assets and using that to buy back its stock and, and increase their dividend and also have exposure to like Delaware Basin, which is you know one of the prime areas where Anadarko is getting taken over and that fight between uh, Oxy and Chevron right now. But I would be careful. I would definitely be taking profits in this industry. I think oil prices are going to come down a little bit ahead of themselves right now. In terms of the mining and resources, guys, that's a very dangerous industry. And it's one of the most shadiest industries. And you know, I'm fortunate to be an insider in that. And, and just the stories that you hear and the things and the CEOs and what they say and what they do, it's a very shady industry. It's very dangerous. You mentioned, Meb, how it's basically a cyclical industry, and it's in the worst cyclical decline in the past 30, 40 years. And that's not me talking. That's guys like Rick Rule, Jeff Phillips, guys that have been in the industry all their lives, Eric Sprott. And you're waiting for it to turn. But one of the negatives is how the majors are kind of merging with each other. And when they're merging with each other, they're looking to divest assets. And when it comes to junior miners, it's usually young entrepreneurs trying to basically stake a claim that have no intention of developing it, right? They just want to Hey, here's what we have, and we drill a little bit more to show how you know the grades are higher, and we're not drilling that deep in terms of meters, and this way they could sell it to these majors, but the majors aren't really buying these projects right now. They're actually looking at Gold Corp with Newmont and saying, look what Gold Corp's trading. It's trading you know, at the lowest valuation in the last 15 years. Let's just buy them and then sell off some of these non-core assets to, to improve our balance sheet. So when I look at junior miners, you have to be careful only because I know – I mean, there's not a lot of names that I like in that industry, but even the ones I like with great management teams, great projects, just in mind-friendly jurisdictions that also have enough cash and don't have to raise cash, even though stocks are going down 30 40%, it seems, almost every year, I'd wait for the cycle to turn. Wait till you see some more positive. Gold goes above 1300 It's just a dangerous area right now, and even the solid companies, which there's not that many in the junior minor side, even those names are getting crushed. So I would probably stay with the Newmonts. I don't know about Barrick, but Newmont's one of our favorite in that industry. And, you know, they really uh, showed up the balance sheet over the past few years in a much better position, especially if the gold corp. Part of the challenge of being a quant is you lose a little bit of the signal here. And a good example is as a prior hedge fund manager, you know, very specifically, there's certain CEOs or entrepreneurs or people that are just, to put it technically, scumbags. And on top of that, are, are maybe just horrible capital destroyers that, you could follow them around from penny stock to penny stock to even some legitimate companies where you can say never in a thousand years would I invest in that person. And that is part of the struggle and challenge of being not an industry insider because it's so easy to get sucked into the story. The biggest challenge for so many investors and me too, which is listening to that entertainment value. And it almost always sounds great. You know, the old Chinese proverb, fish see the bait, but not the hook makes it uh, makes it pretty realistic in the world of natural resources. But Matt, real quick to that point, if you don't mind me, is quant is awesome because your emotions aren't involved, right? You're looking at numbers where even I had to learn that because in 2010, what do we see? And I mentioned this earlier as a theme, we're putting emotions aside. A lot of us, you know, I mean, the banks and, and you know, during the credit crisis and moral hazard and, you know, using our money and just using taxpayer money to get bailed out. Nobody got 
uh, arrested or anything. And, and it provided like this hate, like, wow, this is going to happen again and all these emotions. And I remember listening to David Tepper when he got on TV is 2010. And he said, the Fed's lowering the rates. They're backstopping everything bad in the entire industry, <laughs> all the balance sheets, everything. They're taking all the bad assets, Fannie, Freddie, everything. He goes, you know what's going to go higher? He goes, everything's going to go higher. And I'll never forget that because my emotions were involved. I worked on Wall Street at the time for Kramer. And when I heard that, I'm like, wow, this guy's exactly right. And you could tweet about it. You can get mad. You can get pissed off and say everything you want. But our job is just to provide you areas that you can make money in. And for me, that was a game changer saying you're right. I mean, every asset's going to go much higher. There's basically no risk. They're backstopping everything. And putting those emotions aside, it's not easy to do, but it's a lot easier to do when you're a quant, right? <laughs> the funny thing, you mentioned Tepper. He's kind of, I think, the best example of a really flexible investor. When we wrote our old book, Invest with a House, which listeners is, of course, free to download on our website, Cambria Investments, he was the single best performing manager to clone. And I think it was something like 20% per year which is long only, which is pretty astonishing back to 2000. I mean, just an obscene uh, track record. And the best part is you don't have to pay the two and 20. I, I need to update what uh, what he's holding these days. I'm not sure, but we'll take a look at it in a future episode. But he runs Appaloosa and he now owns, what is he now on, the Panthers? Yes, I think so. Yeah, he just bought the team. Yeah, I think it's the Panthers. Yeah. He's a good dude. I want to reserve some time. We're almost halfway through. So I definitely want to spend some time we could talk about stocks for hours and hours and, and maybe <laughs> maybe we'll have to have you back on to do it. But an area that I've been a sidelines spectator and cheerleader, but have never had any involvement in is the crypto space. And this is an area that we've talked about a little bit about on the podcast, but not a lot. And from someone who's been a probably self-professed longtime stock guy, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but Talk to me a little bit about your introduction to the crypto world, and then also let's get deep on turning you into a token. Listen, the cryptocurrency market I was fascinated by, and the more I looked at some of these things in 2000, and especially 2018, but even 2017, I realized that what's coming out in the market with ICOs are utility tokens, meaning you're not getting an equity stake in the business. A utility token just means you're getting access to their products and services. So these guys are going to build a website, right? They didn't even build it yet. They're going to hire a management team they didn't even have. They're taking all your money. And once they have it up and running, you could use this token for certain benefits. If, say, for example, T0. So T0, you could use that token and for and Binance is a very popular token where you could use that and lower your trading fees, or they even have places you could use it now for Binance to uh, travel and stuff like that. There's uses for it, so there's value there. Think about Chuck E. Cheese or Dave & Buster's, right? So you have a token, and when you go to Dave & Buster's, you could use it. If you go anyplace else, it's worthless. Dave & Buster's opens up 20 places, you could use it in those 20 places, that's fine, but you could only use it Dave & Buster's. Now, say Microsoft takes over Dave & Buster's for $50 billion. Again, not gonna happen, just say, hypothetically. You get nothing. You don't own any equity in the company. You own nothing. You're just holding those cards and you can say, wow, I could use those tokens or cards. That's what the market was and it never made sense to me. And then I started researching security tokens, which are now called digitalized tokens. So it's not necessarily a token. It's just a digitalized contract and it's more like stocks. So with my industry, we realize it's a high growth industry. Few people know about because every company is private. We have a big gorilla who's amazing and you know, almost the publisher of, of all the business they own called Agora. And uh, you're familiar with as well, Meb. So when I saw how those divisions go from five, seven, 10 million into $100 million plus businesses inside four or five years, the reason was is because they have this big gorilla backing them and saying, hey, you know what? If you find things, you could scale it. You can go into the hole for a million, $2 million, perfectly fine. That's a nice luxury to have. We didn't have that, right? So we have a P&L. So in order for us to compete, I wanted to raise money and I've been doing this for a long time and fortunate to have a loyal following and I could have did a traditional private placement, but when I really researched this and tokenization, what we're doing is we're selling off 25% of our company. We're looking to raise $12 million. We already raised $4.5 million. And now that gives us money to really scale our promotions. because, And it's not, hey, we're going to use all this money for a Super Bowl commercial, right? No, it's very calculated. We're looking at ROI. We're looking at return on ad spend. And if things click and those numbers are high based, say, if, you know, RII is 70% after one day and I want to get too technical, that means we could scale it. And what that means is we have a popular promotion out. We'll send it to, you know, it's not just Yahoo Finance. We'll go to CNBC. We'll go to Fox Business. We'll go to Newsmax if it's political or Fox, you know, whatever. So now that we have that, we could better compete. And for me, the advantages was the cost were very, very little. 
we already have an established a business that was doing six million in revenues in our first two years combined. And you get an equity stake in this. And we also intend, I have to say intend, even though we will, but I have to say we intend on paying a, a 3% yield on this. And it's for credit investors only. But the biggest advantage for investors, one for us, the costs are low. We don't have to go to investment banks and pay all these crazy fees. But we're able to sell off a part of our company. And for investors, I think that's important because if we did a traditional private placement, what's your liquidity event? It's either we get taken over or we do an IPO. And that average is about seven years your money's going to be locked up for. Or, by the way, not to interrupt, or nothing, or you're just stuck uh, forever. You know, you're stuck forever, <laughs> which happens most of the time, right? No, I mean, most of the yeah, time. Most of the time. So whatever, I won't even get into like the technicals with that because you know that's why when you're dealing with hedge funds, they want assurances and you're going to have to pay interest on some of this stuff or dividends on the way. But for us, our token goes trading one year from now. Now it's going to go free trading. We're looking to trade on T0 in negotiations, which is going to be the largest security token exchange. We launched this through a company called Securitize, which basically checks every single one of our customers, just like a regular brokerage would do. So if you're a pedophile and you go open an account at a brokerage firm, they're going to red flag you and you're going to get arrested. You don't know that, but you will. So with this, they check. It's called Know Your Customer, KYC, AML's anti-laundering, making sure every customer is good. And then everyone who comes in has to show proof that they're an credit investor. A little bit extra step, and we made it easier for everyone through our site, CurzioEquityOwners.com. But for us, now every one of our clients is legit and our investors are legit, which allows us to go onto these exchanges. And even Coinbase is going to start trading security tokens as well. But when I look at the bigger picture, a year from now, say if we don't execute, say if I totally drop the ball, right? So a year from now, we're going to be reporting numbers every six months. You know, that's not required. Every year it is. So, you know, it's a little relaxed, but I don't think business reporting every three months anyway. I think it's a waste of time. But say if we don't execute in a year, year and a half, now you can sell your token. We're not doing a good job. You know, so it's good for investors. Well, you liquidity event, if you want, of course, we want you to hold it just like you'd hold something from Warren Buffett for 20, 30 years and watch us grow the business. But it's a big advantage to investors. It's a big advantage to us in terms of costs. And it just made sense. And now we were really early to the party. <laughs> I want to say one of the first to do this. And we have a lot of excitement. I must have had more than over a dozen businesses come to me, $2 billion businesses that want to raise money doing this because they're sick of paying fees to institutions, which, look, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley are great companies, brilliant. But at the end, a lot of their business is generated just by being a middleman, right? Hey, we know a lot of people who are rich. You're going to launch this offering? Okay, here. You guys can meet. Pay me 6%. Even give me 6% of the shares outstanding, whatever the deal is. You avoid a lot of that. So- we're seeing record amount of STOs launched last quarter. It is nerve-wracking because it's new to the market, which makes means what? Man, means I could look like an idiot or a genius. I don't know which one yet. <laughs> but it's something that we're proud of because we really we raised money. We're excited. Now, you know, our company's really growing, our list is growing, we're in a good position. It's cool in terms of doing something uh, original. And now the biggest thing going forward is liquidity. We want to make sure T0 is going to launch it. They've already launched that platform, another company called Open Finance. And these are security compliant companies, uh, security compliant exchanges that we're going to be launching on. And that's going to increase as more companies come out, where you're going to see more and more volume and the liquidity increase. And that's one of the risks is the liquidity part. And right now, what we see is we're probably going to have pretty good liquidity if we get on these exchanges, which we're negotiating with them right now. All right. A lot of questions. And you know, this is interesting personally for me as well, because we did a private placement a few years ago. I think the only asset management company that I've ever known that have done a crowdfund raise, again, also accredited only, where we raised about 3 million bucks, but did it through just kind of our audience, also avoided the banks because didn't want to charge people a, an extra 5 8% fee, 10% in some banks, or carry, which is what most of the online platforms will charge. But hearing a lot of what you talk about today is interesting, uh, particularly the liquidity part, because Talk to me a little bit about what that probably means in reality. Is it kind of like these private brokerages like we've had equities in on and shares post that do kind of late stage private for like Uber or Lyft before it went public where they try to match up? How would the trading actually work? So let's say I invest and two years from now, I'm like, all right, my investments doubled, tripled, gone down by half, whatever it has. I want to be able to sell some. What does that actually mean? For those listening, it's not as easy as obviously going on E-Trade and just clicking sell. What does the market look like for this sort of structure? That's the goal. And for me, I wanted to make sure, listen, just like you, when you're going to your clients, you know, I had a good feeling we raise money, but 
Yeah, that's just the beginning for us, right? My name's on the door. I want to make sure like the liquidity part, what happens after this, how we go into the market. So it's a great question. The goal of these exchanges is they want to become the E-Trades and make it easier. So one of the things with the ICO market where you would have an address. So say if you go on Coinbase and you want to deposit money to Coinbase, you could do that through your bank account, right? Stock trades on an exchange like Binance and not on Coinbase because Coinbase only trades a few different securities. What you would do is you have to transfer your money into Binance. And if anything happens, if they get lost or don't get it, you lose your money, which is insane. But now with these new exchanges, since every client, we know every single client, if you lose them, we could burn those tokens and issue them new ones, which is a big deal. That's the first thing. The second thing is you have to go to T0, open up an account, and you're going to see a lot of names. Just picture the NASDAQ just opening, right? So you're going to see more and more companies, more and more companies get added to this. And as they do, you're going to see more and more investors. There's institutions coming in where NASDAQ just announced that they're launching their own security token exchange. It's called Bokt. You see a lot of institutions get involved in this. I know a lot of guys who leaving Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, that, that are going all in on this industry. You've seen a lot of tokenization. But you know, getting back to that question is what T0 is going to do is you're going to have to sign up an account, sign up for an account. You don't have to be an accredited investor, only if you're going to trade STOs. So our lockup period for everyone is one year, no matter what. And then we go free trading. Everyone's one year. In order to invest in this stage, you have to be an accredited investor on minimum is $25,000. After that, it goes free trading. Now anybody could buy the token. And that's what we want to try to provide liquidity where you're going to see more people coming to these as long as you have really good issues coming out. And ours, I like to say, is structured well because I'm not looking for you know a quick payout in one year. This is, again, my name's on the door. This is something I've been doing all my life. I want to do for another 20, 30 years and build a company. I think you're going to see a lot more. And I've been seeing a lot more security tokens come out where they're given an equity stake. You know, you're getting an actual equity stake. Some of these things are paying a dividend. And that's what you want to see. But more and more people, as they sign up to the site, once you have an account there and you have your tokens, so say say this, Mev, if you invested, say, all right, Frank, I want to come in for $100,000. A month before we're free trading, that's when we're going to send the tokens out to you. And those tokens, you could register at T0, open finance. And as soon as it comes public, you could basically sell them. So there's going to be market makers there. There's going to be matching orders. But you're not going to see liquidity, obviously, that you see in the NASDAQ that's going to come we're still early to it. And that's one of the biggest drawbacks from institutions. But now that we're seeing regulation, more regulation coming to the industry, which we really want, you're going to see more institutions because it's different for you and I, right? If we want to do it personally, but they have a fiduciary responsibility. They're managing other people's money. They have to make sure that they dot every I across every T and all the regulations are there. And that's what's coming with these exchanges now, whether you have to be KYC, AML compliant, show that you're a credit investor. And once you go onto these exchanges, that's when you'll be able to trade your tokens. It's interesting. And I think it's a really important distinction that you mentioned between the initial coin offering versus the digitized tokens, because the initial coin offering listeners, it's very similar to the old school SPACs, which were popular in the last cycle. And and then you have to go back a few decades, which were special purpose acquisition companies where company would raise a billion dollars and then go look for someone to acquire. And so a lot of these ICOs have no business, have no revenues. They may have a couple people. I mean, that's why probably most of them have vaporized most investors' money. This is a little different than you're actually investing in a functional company that already has product and revenue, which is, in my mind, totally different. It seems like, by the way, a obvious, and I think you hinted at it, and I don't know if you're moving this way or not, but an obvious opportunity for you as well to assist other companies with guiding them to their own fundraises as well. Is that something you're thinking about? Yeah, we're thinking about that too. A lot of different things in this industry because I I really believe, you know, I'm going to say this and it's going to sound crazy when I say it, but let me define it. And I've said this publicly that this will be a trillion dollar industry and people say no way. But if you're looking at at real estate itself is a $200 trillion industry. I mean, you can go into so many different industries and get up to hundreds of trillions more. But if you just have 1% of that tokenized and what tokenization is, is just selling a piece of your business to the public. Just like you would do all these, it's one quick is they tokenize 30% of that asset. What does that mean? It means that they sold whatever, one point, whatever million. So individual investors were able to own a piece of that painting, but now that shares go down an exchange and that's how you determine the value. So now it gives you a chance to own a Babe Ruth rookie card or a piece of it. It gives you a chance to earn a piece of commercial real estate. It gives you a chance, you know, which illiquid markets, collectibles. So you're seeing that at St. Regis Aspen just tokenized their hotel, a certain percentage of their hotel, where you're selling off a piece of their assets. It's getting bigger and bigger. It just, you know, like you said, with consulting and stuff and been through this whole thing, you know, you're talking 15, 16 hour days. It was crazy. It was definitely worth it. But just learning and all the mistakes because you're brand new to the industry. 
it's incredible how far it's come over the past six months uh, as we launched ours, where it just makes, I can't find a reason why this won't be a massive industry and why it wouldn't compete. It's not, it's not like you're not, you're going to go to T0 instead of going to NASDAQ and going to New York Stock Exchange to launch your companies, but it gives you an opportunity to really own smaller businesses and get it on the ground floor, right? And if you look at the market today, you really want to buy Lyft at these prices. You want to buy Alibaba. You want to buy Facebook when it came out. I mean, most of the growth, you look at Lyft, these guys are in the money on their options and restricted stock units at $10, $11. I mean, six months, that stuff's going to come out. So they got in a lot earlier. You're buying a company that multi $20 billion plus valuation. A lot of that growth has taken place already. With this, you get really in. It's going to be a little bit more risky. But you're really getting the ground floor and buying these things at very early levels. And I think that's going to, you know, people are going to love this market. It's the fees are much less, but there is liquidity issues and you're going to have to see more and more of these come to the market. But from someone who's studied the markets for, for over two decades, I just can't find a reason why this isn't work. It just, it's like Uber. It just makes sense. If you took an Uber or a Lyft, you wouldn't really take a taxi anymore. It's cheaper. It's easier. You don't have to take out money. It's safer. This industry just makes sense to me. Frank, that was a little too close to home listening to that. I'm a Lyft shareholder who's locked up. So it's a good problem to have. It's a good problem to have because I own some, but I hear you. I'm uh, Believe me, if I could, I would be liquidating. You know, it's funny because we had a Howard Lindzen on the podcast a while back and he was talking about a company he'd invested in called Rally Road, which is essentially securitizing collectible cars. And Sometimes I don't necessarily get it, and I am fully admit that. And I said, why would people want to invest in these cars if they can't drive them, they can't do anything with them? And sure enough, that company has been incredibly successful. And there's a lot of other ideas that spawn from that that might not be... There was a good podcast, listeners, with, we'll put it in the show note links, between the Rally Road founders and another podcast guest, Jason Calcanis where they talked about other ideas, like where they're going to take the cars and turn them into a museum. So essentially, you're generating income from these collectibles, which I had never even considered. So there's a lot going on in that world. And I think it's certainly fascinating. And the advice I would give, which is what you're doing, is to certainly try to invest in companies that are real. Investing in ideas is fun and exciting, but often there's no there there. And so looking at companies and offerings where there's actually over a million in revenue is certainly a pretty good way of increasing your batting average of companies that potentially could succeed. And management teams too, man, because you're looking at these kids that come up with great ideas, but they never managed a company before. And they're spending 50 grand here, 100 grand here, like nothing. They don't, you know, it's not their fault. We're all optimistic and it's amazing because the technologies may look good using the blockchain, but you know, when you're looking at some of these, you want to make sure that the business is established, you have a good management team, they are generating revenues, there's got to be some kind of growth profile that you see. And you mentioned something really quick where the debt markets is where this thing is really, really going to take off because the debt markets are more of an illiquid market. And that's where you're looking at investment banking industry. That's where they generate the most fees. And I've talked to fortunate enough, he's kind of a mentor now, he's listened to the podcast for five years. He's one of the large independent bond fund managers, and he manages $16 billion, and he wants to tokenize, you know, he wants to create a fund for a billion dollars and tokenize it because, and this is a guy that never curses and never gets mad, and he was just like, he went on this whole rant how the amount of fees that they charge for doing absolutely nothing, these investment banks are a joke, and they're trying to avoid that. And there's a reason why you're seeing Goldman Fidelity, a lot of these guys are looking to get into tokenization because if this thing takes off, it really is a threat to their business, and we haven't really seen too many threats in so many disruptive technologies, right, in the the investment banking industry for decades, if not 100 years, where it's always been one way. And this is something that I think they're going to have to get into, and they are getting into. And it's an industry that has some of the highest profit margins of any industry on the planet. And on top of that, it's crazy as you look around. There's any place there's enormous fat, you know, the old Bezos quote, your margin is my opportunity, is sort of astonishing that these banks still are able to command a lot of that. When you think of the IPO market, and you think of obviously the, the most obvious for most individuals on a day-to-day basis is, of course, real estate. The VIG you have to pay on buying and selling houses is still bananas. So let's say people want to get up to speed on this space. A, where do they find out more about your offering? B, are there any other resources you recommend, websites, books, conferences, newsletters, anything on the general token space. Yeah, and thanks. I appreciate that, Meb. So CurzioEquityOwners.com is where you can find our white paper, our PPM agreement. It's going to give you our cap table, list everything. If anyone's interested in investing, they can reach out through email. We also have a, an easy-to-use guide. It shows you exactly how to invest in this. And if you're interested or have any other questions, 
I talk to almost every investor in the company. I've turned away investors because, you know, guys are just, you know, we're very upfront with people in this industry. So, you know, I don't want to, uh, it's not a sales call. It's you asking any question you want me sitting there answering them because, you know, when you have a legit deal and you're excited about something, it's really cool. That's the easiest way to do it. But forget about it because this isn't going to be, you know, some of you aren't accredited investors out there and some of you might say, you know what, Frank, I don't know about this business. I don't like it. We created a site called Token Tracker and you can find it through your Research. I would go on there because what we do is we're just taking stories from the top token sites, security token sites, not the utility tokens. Uh, and you'd be amazed at the news that's coming out. And we pull these from different sources and cite them. And you might find a site off of there that's pretty cool, but it'll lead you to start learning about this industry. It's still very early. It's kind of like investing in cloud 10 years ago when people didn't, we took days to look up at the sky, be like the cloud, what's the cloud? Now everybody knows what the cloud is. I'm pretty sure that's what you're going to see with this industry. So just get familiar with it. Just learn about it. Not so much where you have to invest in everything, but start learning about it. And you'll see why when you read a lot of these stories and why the institutions are getting into it and you know, record STOs are being launched the right way where you're getting an equity stake in our business. So if we get taken over, you're going to get paid like you, just like you would if you invested in, in a stock. You'll find a lot of great information on our token tracker site. And, uh, you know, it's gotten good reviews. It's very easy to read. And we just provide, like, really cool stories every week. What's going on in the industry? Probably five to ten different stories. So that's a good place to start. What's the minimum for yours? Our minimum is 25000 And what you get is an equity stake in our business. We intend to pay a 3% yield on that. And also, you're going to have free access to all of our products now, which we have five paid products and I think another five or six free. And every product we offer in the future with no maintenance fees or nothing. And when I look at our competitors, a lot of our competitors charge twenty, thirty thousand dollars just for that service alone. You're getting all that. Plus, it's I want to say the first time in our industry's history where you're getting an equity stake in a financial newsletter publisher, which you can't do anyplace else. And you know, when you really see the margins, and I know you know them as well, of how big Agora is, which is an amazing company run by Bill Bonner, and even Porter Stansberry has a division of that, and how these companies have grown into $200 million plus revenue businesses. You could see how big the margins are and how quick this industry could scale if you do the right thing. And the fact that we raise money, we're in a position to really accelerate that. Again, we have to execute. There's a lot of risk, but we're in a good position where, you know, it's nice where it's on us. I love that position because that's not always the case when you open up a business. It's up to us. If we execute, then this thing could get big. If we don't, then at least you could sell a token pretty quickly. <laughs> As we wind down, I love it. This has been actually really educational and interesting. I'm fascinated by this world. I was kind of a crypto hater for years, mainly because I love teasing my crypto friends. The very first comment you made about Chuck E. Cheese and Dave and Buster's was funny because I used to always, when I would go on a long international flight, I would poke my crypto friends by saying, I'm getting ready to mine the crap out of some cryptocurrency by taking a flight to London and getting a bunch of Delta Sky Miles, which I said it was the, the original cryptocurrency it was frequent flyer miles. And I said, at least I could buy something with it as opposed to some of the some of the coins. But it's a fascinating world to me. And this is finally becoming interesting. And Matt, real quick too, this isn't about Bitcoin and Ethereum, guys. I mean, you see Bitcoin going higher or whatever. This is about companies. This is totally different. I mean, that's the ICO market. This market is about more like a stock exchange of people selling off pieces of their company to you and you're able to buy them. But this has to do more with the company. If our company accelerates, our token should go higher. It is a Ethereum-based token, but it's not based on where Ethereum is going to go, where Bitcoin is going to go. That's more the ICO market. This is a big change. It's going to be more like a stock market. And, and you know, it's hard for us to tell people and teach people to distinguish between those two markets because people got burned. You just saw a market that crashed. But it's totally different from the Bitcoin Ethereum markets. Yeah. And I've said on Twitter, I said I'd, 100 times out of 100, I'd rather invest in a basket of kick-ass founders with real companies that have the potential to go 10, 100x then speculate on a currency where there's no underlying business that is behind the concept. A couple more quick questions and we'll wind down. As a big boots on the ground guy, I know you hit up a lot of conferences, New Orleans, Vancouver, CES. What's your favorite? And do you have one that you think offers the most sort of bang for the buck value on attending? I like the CES, but if you're going to go to the Consumer Electronics Show, it's held every year in January, like first, second week. I've been going for, I think it's eight years now. For me, I have a formula. I have contacts. It's overwhelming because there's over 4,000 companies there. If you're not familiar, it's where all the technologies go to tell you what the products are going to launch for that year. So it's really exciting, and you have all these companies now, all the networks covering it, but you really want to dig deep in there. And you know, even if you take like an executive tour, they tell you, because of the 4,000 companies, there should be probably about 800 there. There's no business that many companies. And it gets overwhelming. There's drones, there's robots, but 
for me, it's talking to the employees in there and it just regular employees have been in the company for maybe 10, 15 years and not on the executive level. And I mean, the things I found out, I was there when Chambers said internet of everything and tens of billions of devices are going to get connected. I thought he was crazy, right? It turns out to be conservative. You're looking at just different markets develop. I'm able to see different things like iRobot just reported and they said that they're raising prices on you know, their biggest growth drive in 2019 is going to be their new Roomba. I went to CES, there's at least 10 companies that produce the same product, which means they don't have proprietary technology. They probably have patents on it, but obviously people can make other machines. And the ones that I saw were climbing the walls and cleaning windows on the outside. So you're telling me you're going to raise prices on this product when I don't know if you have pricing power and then you know your margins are lower even though you said you raised prices and that's why you saw a stock went down 20% when they reported it. Those things I'm able to see at the Consumer Electronics Show, what technologies are working, how 3D printing never really got adopted. They had a massive space for it. Now it's much smaller. You're looking at wearables. There's no difference between these wearables. That's why you look at Fitbit, even GoPro. There's millions of cameras that do the same thing, 360 degree, they have websites and everything. So you're able to see a lot of trends before they happen and able to avoid a lot of the pitfalls you see with technology, especially if you don't have your IP locked up, you know, and patents and stuff like that. So that's a fun conference to go to. What was the biggest wow moment from this year's show? This year is when a ping pong robot kicked my ass. That was the biggest thing. <laughs> I played an actual wow. robot and, ping- and it was serving. You could put it on a different level where they're slamming and stuff, and I couldn't believe it. And it was really cool. I got a video of it. That was awesome. But AI is a big feature. It's tough to invest in AI because you know the private companies get bought right away, and it's not like a pure play anywhere for AI. But data analytics is big. But I could tell you one big thing that was amazing. The last two years when you have virtual assistants like the Alexas and Google Homes and even Apple, all three of them were on display this year. It was just Alexa. Alexa was everywhere. They didn't have Google. They didn't have a lot of these companies in everything. Everything was integrating with Alexa. Every single business, everything. If you're looking at Honeywell was there, Procter & Gamble. Everything was revolved around Alexa and working with Alexa. And you didn't see any of the other devices there, which is surprising to me, but it just shows you how amazing, how innovative Amazon is. Interesting. Last question. What, looking back on your career, so there's a lot of things to choose from. What's been your most memorable investment? It could be good, it could be bad. Just the one that one that sticks burning in your brain. The one good investment I'm going to say is not mine, but my late dad was amazing at spotting value. And two of the companies he recommended was Churchill Downs and this thing in very low areas. And now it's booming. He saw racinos where you put a casinos in these racetracks. But more important is... In his single digits, he recommended a company called Texas Pacific Land Trust. And a friend of ours actually recommended it probably about seven, eight years ago, Steve Sugarroot. And I showed him my dad's research and he went to Texas and went to that. My mom still owns it today. And it's just a land holding in Texas, the largest land holding maybe in the United States. And they receive royalty rights on their property and oil and stuff like that in West Texas. And the stock went from low single digits and my mom still holds it and it's around $900 today. So that's amazing. But that's the one positive I would say. But most of my investments I focus on is the ones that I make mistakes on because that's when you learn the most. So, you know, you don't want to go in, all in on everything. You want to limit your losses. But that's when you have the biggest lessons when you lose money. Unfortunately, you know, I've had them, of course, like everybody else. And uh, I just want to be able to learn and figure out what you did wrong. And those are my biggest memories, actually, on my losses, much more than my wins. All right. Well, what's your most memorable loss then? You set that one up too easy. What? <laughs> you know what it was? It was GE recently. So GE, I look at the value of it. I analyze all these divisions. Probably about $14, $15. I actually recommend it to my subscribers. And our policy is we're allowed to invest a day later into our situations, which, you know, this way we eat our own cooking and stuff, which is really cool. I just was a big believer in what Imelt was saying. And not really Imelt, but even after that, I was a big believer they're going to generate at least $2 in earnings. I discounted that by 25% and turned out they generate less than a dollar in earnings. And there was so much wrong under the hood. I really thought the kitchen sink was in. And then when they started reporting insurance losses and all these other losses as they went through every division, I realized that I put too much faith in, hey, I looked at the estimates. I discounted them. I still thought you're looking at Dow components. They always get crushed and they always come back. And this is one that actually got kicked out of the Dow. But that was one that hurt because I was pretty high on it. And, and that one blew up in my face. So, Yeah, that's uh, you know, it's funny because we talk so much about how personal experience informs every investor in in different cycles. You talk to Japanese investors or Russian or Brazilian or Greek and everyone, even US investors over time, the people that were forever scarred by 2008 that never invested again. We talk to those investors, if not weekly, almost daily, but also the people 
my mom was a big GE investor back in the day and said, you buy stocks and you hold them. <laughs> well, of course you buy and hold them. Like the Texas example you give when they go up a hundred bagger or whatever it is, but you see the flip side too, creative destruction and capitalism. That's pretty rare for securities to survive. And GE is certainly a good example of both sides of that trade and investment. I think we've mentioned, Frank, we'll add it to the show notes. Best places for people, if they want to get in touch with you and they want to learn more. Where do they go? You go to CurziaResearch.com. My email is also Frank at CurziaResearch.com. I do Wall Street Unplugged podcast Wednesday where I host, you know, I host you a couple of times as well. And then on Friday, I would do something called Frankly Speaking, where I just take questions about stocks and, you know, I'll take three questions and answer them, have fun with it. And but that's the best place to reach you. The Wall Street Unplugged. My email is just frankcurzyresearch.com or just go to our website at curzyresearch.com and you can find everything you need. And thanks. I appreciate that, man. Frank, it's been a lot of fun chatting with you today. Thanks for taking the time out. Thank you. Thanks for the invite. And I love what you guys are doing, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Listeners, we'll add all the links to the show notes of all Frank's goings-ons. You can find them at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. You can always leave us a review. We're right around 500. I want to see who the 500th review is. We'll read it on air. Good, bad, in between. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Podcast Stitcher, Radio Public, Breaker, anywhere good podcasts are sold. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.